Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Anna Schwenkenbecher. It's wonderful to have you here, Anna. How are you and what are you thinking about on what is presumably a balmy Western Australian evening for you? Hi, Toby. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, it is very warm here in, in Perth at the moment. Uh, in fact, it's been super warm um, towards the end of the last year. Uh, we did have uh, already have some some bushfires this season. Um, and I guess one of the things we did um, uh, sort of have some some uh, conversation about is is uh, the questions about you know obviously climate change um, and uh, and it's uh, the fact that it just seems to be uh, so hard to do anything about it and that um, it just seems to be for some reason a problem that even though it is so clear uh what is happening why it is happening and what needs to be done to fix it we for some reason collectively fail to fix it uh collectively i mean humanity as a whole is failing to to fix it and so as you know, that's um, uh, these collective action problems and collective action generally is obviously something I've thought a lot about in in my work. So um, you're a philosopher, but the collective action problem is the invention of a Canadian political scientist, Manka Olson. So what do you professional real philosophers think of a shoddy, down-at-heel neoliberal from the 60s like him? Um, I read his uh, work uh, uh, some time ago, and actually I find it great, I did find it greatly inspiring. It was more mm. on the, um, from memory on the mechanics of, um, of collective action and how collective action becomes possible and more likely. So um, I didn't... Uh, have uh, any issues with with the approach taken what i was what i was particularly interested in as somebody who has a background in moral philosophy or ethics and political philosophy is uh, what i will call the sort of collective ethics or the the ethics of collective action when do we have to um take action when do we have to contribute to collective action how do we make it happen and do we have obligations to make it happen sometimes and what I'm also interested in uh, is the particular uh, I would call it like deliberative approach to these kinds of problems like how do we think about these problems uh, these uh, collective action problems um, is there a specific way that we think about them that will um, help us uh, for instance, better solve them, or that will be more illuminating when it comes to understanding the, um, you know, the, the obligations we have with regard to these problems. So that's all uh, described in a lot of detail in uh, my book that you are uh, uh, familiar with, uh, uh, called "Getting Our Act Together: um, A Theory of Collective Moral Obligations." And one of the things I think that 
perhaps uh, people in the, well, generally perhaps economists and political scientists do, but also philosophers um, in this context is what I would call be too uh, tied up to a very individual individualist uh, no, approach to both what it means to be an agent and also what it means to have responsibility and what it means to um, to have uh, moral obligations. So what I'm trying to advocate for is a way of, in a way, is some uh, uh, rethinking uh, this uh, the our approach to these collective action problems. So um, in 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 the standard form, these these dilemmas are um, uh, perceived as one where you know what's collectively rational is individually irrational. What's individually rational is collectively uh, um, uh, irrational. So if everyone does uh, what makes a lot of sense to them individually, somehow we end up with a problem collectively. Um, and that's also something that happens in in climate change, seemingly. Uh, it seems that, you know, uh, we all do a number of seemingly pretty innocuous things uh, on a daily basis. We have set up, set up our lives in a certain way where we... Um, you know, you know, drive our cars to perhaps work or to, you know, buy groceries or go on holiday um, and, uh, you know, take planes to travel uh, across the globe um, and, and you know, consume energy and all sorts of things. Obviously, uh, there's, there's emissions attached and, and, also, uh, and, and environmental impacts attached to our actions, but... Um, it looks like on the individual level, you know, these are, if taken in isolation, just not not a big problem. Uh, at the same time, we know that uh, in, in aggregation they cause uh, this really, really big problem of climatic change. So I think what has been happening and, um, uh, you know, uh, it's also perhaps a common perception that uh this uh, there is some kind of responsibility uh, on the individual to to address these issues and to to be aware of uh, you know their consumption their carbon footprint you you see you see the same uh, I, I guess approach also not just in when it comes to uh greenhouse gases and carbon footprint reduction but you also see it when it comes to sort of ethical consumerism and things like that this idea that uh, there is an individual obligation to do something about it and that if only enough people changed their behaviour or did the right thing, then these problems would um, uh, be resolved or at least improved. And I think what we've inherited a little bit from uh, discourses uh, in probably mainstream economics uh, and to some extent, political science uh, is this sort of thinking of these issues in terms of sort of individuals and their and their actions, sort of this individual individualizing it. And you pointed me um, last week to this uh, article of the Economist uh, that, um, well, actually, a couple of weeks ago that appeared just before Christmas, 
what responsibilities do individuals have to stop climate change? And it's it was an interesting article because it did really pick up a lot of the philosophical um, arguments around, you know, our individual obligations uh, and whether or not we could reduce or, or somehow... Uh, I guess, closely tie individual actions to concrete climate harms, for instance, and what that meant for our obligations. And in principle, there's nothing complete, there's nothing wrong with that view as such. It is, you know, it, it, or with that approach, it, it does make sense to think about, well, how, what is the relationship between these big aggregate effects and my individual actions? We all know that, for instance, psychologically, it does make a difference to people uh, whether or not they can relate the concrete uh, outcomes to their individual actions or whether they feel, oh, you know, um, whatever I've done for the for better or for worse hasn't made a difference. So, um, so there is some reason to, uh, I guess, tackle this uh, issue from the perspective of what it means for the individual um, as you as you already know, that's not necessarily the perspective I want to take, and it's not necessarily um, that I think that this is the only or even the best perspective to take with these issues. Um, in particular, I think we should try to um, uh, see ourselves in these contexts not so much as individuals who are individually making a difference and who are individually uh, potentially um, able to to fix these problems, but rather we should approach them, these problems as problems for a group, as a, as a collective problem and, and see ourselves as members of groups that cause these. So it's basically a way of... Uh, thinking of our agency not so much in individualist terms but in terms of the groups within which we act and or in some cases also omit to act. Does that make sense? Yes, pardon me, I think I understand. And, of course, the doctrine of the carbon footprint being individual is the creation of BP operating with public relations miscreants and... The idea, for example, of the individual private commercial air traveller on a plane with hundreds of others being responsible is laughable when it's the 1% of people who fly often alone in executive jets and parade around the country and around the world all the time, along with the two biggest airplane emitters in the world, the Chinese and US military, that are actually the nub of the problem. Uh, but of course, you're in a very particular place where this notion of individual and collective is particularly meaningful, namely Australia. And the other place where it's particularly meaningful is Norway. These are wealthy countries with reasonable distributions of income where there are quite sizable proportions of people wanting to diminish climate change. But per capita, these are the two carbon criminals of the world. And much of the wealth in Australia and in Norway, uh, in Norwegian, in the Norwegian's case, sensibly put into the sovereign wealth fund in Australia's case, 
used to provide social services without raising taxes um, and to raise the incomes of corporate investors, where, in a sense, be seeing oneself as a member of a group and not just being someone obsessed with individual comfort or travel or pleasure, or whatever it might be, runs into the problem of the fact that the collective interest in the short term of the country has been so clearly related to corporate carbon criminality, right? So it's a different sort of problem if you're a citizen of Norway or Australia or other or petro states uh, too, like Britain and the United States, than it is if you are a citizen of uh, Bangladesh uh, or a citizen of Aotearoa, New Zealand, right? Uh, yes. So let me see to, let me try to see where, where you're coming from here. So, um, so there's a couple of different things. One is the extent to which perhaps citizens of the country have some responsibility for what is happening, what, what their country's climate policy is. Um, and, uh, to what, it, what the relationship between, you know, I guess the uh, particular nations, um, I guess, uh, environmental record is and, and, and the individual citizens within it. The other question is that of, uh, the obligations of states within, um, the group of, you know, the, um, nations, uh, on this planet. So I think, uh, again, the approach that I'm proposing that we take seriously this idea that, uh, moral obligations can be in a, in an, irreducible sense collective that is attached to various uh, you know more than one agent two or more agents sort of together that would apply as much to individual people like you and I who can have obligations together um as it would uh, attach to what we in philosophy call corporate uh, agents, corporate moral agents. Um, obviously, the term corporate agent is not a philosophical term, but a corporate moral agency where corporate moral agency would include states, but not just corporations. So basically structured groups that, um, you know, are governed in a certain way and have certain decision-making procedures. They also are, in a sense, individual agents, which again can have obligations together with others. So I see this as a sort of a multi-layered um, thing in a way. We could say Australia is not actually meeting its obligations, uh, its contributor contributory obligations within sort of the group of um, you know the, the the group of nations on this on this globe. So and it, and it, and it isn't fully. Uh, so uh, one of the and, and they partly acknowledge that and we we know that um, it's been at least in the past a position of the Australian government to uh, deliberately tie their willingness um, to contribute their share to, for instance, mitigation to uh, targets from other nations. Australia is not the only nation doing that, but um, it's the idea of oh, well uh, we'll only do this if others do it um uh 
And also another argument that Australians, uh, Australian governments have been pushing is, oh, you know, we might be high per capita emitters, but uh, in terms of sort of total emissions, we're, you know, lower than, let's say, China, say India, say the US. Uh, therefore, you know, it doesn't really matter so much what we do. And of course, that's a tricky argument because on some level it's correct. On some level it's correct to say maybe Australia will not make the difference if you just look at, you know, emission reductions. But what it does do, it ties um, having an obligation to contribute to collective endeavour. It ties that to um, making a difference to the outcome or making a significant difference to the outcome. And that's where, and that is something that I'm trying to, um, I guess, unentangle and provide a alternative approach for where I say, well, well, yeah, sorry, you go. Have a look at my sweatshirt, Prof. Okay, yeah. There's the big man, Carlito, Carlos Marx. Here, surely the point is for these dumb fuck Australians must be... The life of the commodity sign makes them hugely responsible for what China and India do because they provide the raw materials for unsustainable electricity production and consumption in those countries. And that needs to be the scale of responsibility, not the fact that however many millions of Australians there are themselves use less electricity than billions of South Asians and Chinese. Uh, I mean, this is a, it's not that it's, a, you know, they're, they're unrelated. They're very closely related, right? And unless you look at the full, the totality, pardon me, I'm just going to boil some water here, Prof. If you look at the totality of the life of the commodity sign, then you can come to some kind of accounting for responsibility uh, for everything from labor relations to uh, climate impact, right? Or so it seems to me. But unless that's yeah, done, so, you end up yeah. getting decontextualized arguments of the kind that you, you're explaining the Australian government or governments have tended to produce, which seems bizarre to me. But you, you can't get away with that if you look at where the stuff comes from that em- enables and empowers these unsustainable systems, right? Yeah, so that's, I guess that's another argument that Australia's um, um, climate change obligations or mitigation related mm. obligations shouldn't perhaps be purely um, calculated, if you will, based on um, the carbon um, emissions or greenhouse gas emissions that, uh, that are taking, happening in Australia. Um, but um, but take into account uh, the emissions that we enable through uh, fossil fuel um, uh, sales into yeah into into exports into China and India in particular. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. So in terms of carbon accounting, if we just look narrowly at carbon accounting and you know who needs to pay for what, because based on let's say. Um, uh, sort of polluter pays or something principal or on a carbon budget or something like that. You could say, well, whatever, um, you know, if greenhouse gas emissions are um, generated in India or China, 
should are accounted for there. Um, and and as such, uh, you know, um, that's that's sort of where we 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 don't want to you know double count them, so to speak, to to also kind of hold them. Uh, hold Australia responsible for them. But what I think what you're after is a, is a larger question about responsibility, not so narrow about perhaps carbon budgets. So we want to say, well, you know, what do these responsibilities involve quite generally when we look at um, not just at our individual nation, but um, how it all fits together? Yeah, and Australia, it is true. It's um, it's Its economy is very much reliant on fossil fuel extraction and fossil fuel exports um and yeah it's and some philosophers have started to point out and probably not just philosophers but i only know of the philosophers have written about it um that uh there are responsibilities arising from the fact that we're supplying these um you know fossil fuels uh, for sure. I'm not sure that my approach in particular is needed, I suppose, to address this issue. There's uh, questions to do with or, or the notion of complicity, uh, for instance, uh, that's being discussed in philosophy um, uh, or, or other uh, notions of responsibility that would probably be sufficient to, um, to, make, to make that case quite convincingly uh, that there's at least some responsibility to do with uh, mm-hmm. I think and partly it's acknowledged in the in international um, uh, climate regime that uh, you know uh, sort of developed nations have uh, responsibilities to help developing nations to um, uh, you know change uh, their uh, energy productions etc but uh, the extent to which that's obviously not based necessarily on the on the question of where where the fossil fuels come from in the first place. Yeah, but you're quite yeah. right. If, if with a if you, if you look at um, if you if you if you look if you take the point of view that this is a collective problem that can be collect mm. can only be collectively solved, that it makes very little sense to just point to Australia's own emissions and say, well, this is the only part we're responsible for and ignoring this contribution to the problem elsewhere. You're quite right. So it, it, in a way, the, the perspective I'm taking to treat this really as a collective problem uh, that we want to address from the perspective of the group where we think, well, what is the best thing, you know, that we can do as perhaps nations on this globe? What is the best thing? That can be done and what is there for the best thing that individual nations do um that problem of sort of neglecting um these these contributory factors or contributing factors that that, that problem wouldn't 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 be so so prominent so yeah I, I agree with you that that this change of perspective should should would 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 probably prevent that that the this this kind of issue Prof, can I ask you about a couple of different audiences for the work that you do on this question? One, other professional philosophers such as yourself. What's the reaction from, you know, to use some stereotypes, people who follow Robert Nozick versus people who follow John Rawls, the reaction from people who see themselves more as continental versus those who see themselves as more analytic philosophers? So that's one group of audiences. And the other group of audiences 
other people you meet or talk to or teach or work with because you've done very valuable public intellectual work talking about these things. So I wondered if you could first tell me about the reception of these ideas within professional philosophy and secondly within other contexts. Yeah, I would think that philosophy, at least analytic philosophy, I think is quite wedded to a type of individualism that I'm trying to, uh, I guess, somewhat undermine, but while also being an analytic philosopher. So, um, so, and when I found that continental, continental philosophers, if we want to, you know, stick to these, um, very rough uh, uh, divisions and uh, characterizations tend to be very, not just very open to um, the idea of collective responsibilities, um, but, and, and the recognition and emphasis on the social nature of agency and, uh, you know, us as, as individuals, but also point uh, often to work in, in, the philosophical tradition that's sort of been pioneering some of these thoughts, uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre, for instance, in, in his work. Um, and so then there are some people like uh, the philosopher Larry May who actually combine the two. Um, so he's uh, uh, quite familiar with, with both traditions and has, you know, used those arguments in, in, in his work from both traditions. Or people like Iris Marion Young, who um, also probably would, you know, sit perhaps a bit more between those traditions. Um, I find there is definitely, I mean, in the in the particular article that we um, we spoke about already, and from the economists on the individual responsibilities to stop climate change, philosophers like John Broom uh, are mentioned, and 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 quite a few others, and uh, Waterson and Armstrong. And I do feel like there's uh, their their work is very sophisticated. At the same time, it is very very wedded to this individual agency, and and it, it's very strongly individualistic. And they try to uh, find solutions to these collective action problems while being still within this um, quite individualist frame. Uh, again, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it. What I'm advocating for in my work is that we actually naturally, quite naturally switch between what I call the mm. different frames, the I frame and the we frame. So we quite naturally switch between seeing um, a particular problem or a particular action just from the, uh, as an action of an individual or as a problem for an individual and trying to think about how to solve it as an individual problem and then switch from that to, to seeing it as a problem for the group. And we adopt, often adopt uh, solution concepts, if you like, um, uh, that are actually based on perceiving uh, this particular problem as a problem for the group. So, so that's a very long winded answer to your question. So, so I think there's, uh, there's, I, I don't think any of these perspectives are uniquely right or wrong, but I think what I'm trying to do in the works to say, well, there's actually, we probably need both um, because I think it is part of our experience as human beings that we do 
switch between these perspectives. And we do both see ourselves as individual agents who are individually efficacious in the world and as members of groups where what we do makes sense to us because it is a contribution to um, potentially the solution of a collective action problem or just to whatever we think is collectively optimal. And that's perhaps where my work sits. It, it hasn't set, I haven't set out to reconcile these, um, these different, um, I guess, uh, types of uh of sort of philosophy if you like or but i but it is uh in some sense uh um an opening of analytic philosophy to other ideas but still using the means of analytic philosophy so i don't think there's anything about analytic philosophy that would necessarily tie it to individualism uh uh i don't think there's an, there's any any necessity to that but it just has to be traditionally a bit more individualistic but we've seen this over the past sort of few decades we've seen this change sorry and the second part of your question was about other people how they um react to these ideas concretely or more how how when i engage with i guess the general public to how they feel about climate change related obligations or was that your question Mm mm-hmm yeah, so it's really interesting. I think that what we see perhaps in the, I guess, theoretical literature, this sort of perhaps a bit of a divide between people who feel more drawn towards individualist perspectives and others are kind of more open to collectivist perspectives. I think that happens in <laughs> with sort of a non-academic or non-philosophy audience as well. It mm. just seems to be um, just... Uh, perhaps I, I, here I can only speculate because this is not, I'm not a social psychologist. I do wonder whether or not background and upbringing play a, a bit of a role, whether um, uh, your uh, political uh, orientation can play a bit of a role and whether or not you are uh, not just taking this perspective, these two perspectives, because I, I think everyone does, uh, but how aware of it you are and how willing you are to sort of to sort of acknowledge that we don't that that a lot of the things that we do we do in a sense because they are contributions or actions within a group context i'm just going to say group context largely, largely like i'm just going to give a, a concrete example so a lot of us, uh, voting is actually a really good example. Voting is uh, such a basic example. So in Australia, voting is compulsory. So this particular example doesn't work very well in Australia because if it's compulsory, you have a very clear individual incentive to vote. You don't want to pay a fine. But for all these other countries where it's not um, compulsory, people often say there's a paradox of voting. You know, everyone knows that their individual vote makes no difference. Um, yet, quite a lot of people, usually uh, more than 50%, go and vote in democratic societies. And it's true that your vote, my vote, is not going to make the difference between candidates. It's never, it could theoretically make the difference because it could happen that it's the one vote that makes the decision. So it's it's possible. Um, but it's it's not clear that people vote because of that tiny, tiny possibility that they could be difference makers. They actually vote. They must be voting for other reasons. So, and he, my, um, I guess, 
hypothesis is that they vote because they actually or they don't vote based on uh, their idea of whether or not they're individually making a difference, which is sort of the individualist approach, if you like, that of individual efficacy, but because they they want to contribute to a collective pattern of action that they think is overall a justified or good pattern. So us uh, being able to vote and arguably it is a good thing or better than not being able to to vote so me then contributing that and playing my part in it is actually a way of reframing or collectively framing the scenario I'm facing I'm thinking about what is collectively optimal or the right or best or justified Mm -hmm. pattern of action Mm -hmm. and then I uh, contribute my share I infer my individual contribution to that so I don't think if you look at it this way, there is no paradox of voting. It's only if you look at it from the individualist perspective that it looks like a paradox. And similar, I think, if we think perhaps about climate change, where, again, it makes very little difference whether you or I, um, you know, change our behaviour or whether we even exist will not make a difference to whether or not the climate will be changing in dangerous ways. But still, a lot of us try to do something and try to um, try to you know change their lives to some extent. And in, in doing so, I, I'm arguing we are uh, approaching this from a different perspective, maybe from the perspective of the group. I think that's a great argument, and the idea of a structural homology between civics education and environmental education that could spring from that is very suggestive and helpful. So, Prof, if we could just go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, to look at your work more generally. I wonder if you could give us a brief overview, not as if you were in a promotion and tenure meeting or a job interview or a CV, but as if we were at a dinner party and people fell silent because they wanted to know about your exciting scholarly past. I mean, we haven't been uh, to enough dinner parties together because you would know that I actually really hate talking about my work at dinner parties. I try to avoid it all costs. So if somebody asked me, I would probably fall very silent and say, oh, I work I work in moral and political philosophy. Right. <laughs> Sorry, no, but um, okay, so I think uh, the work generally to give a more satisfying answer and to be a a kinder, more generous dinner guest. (laughs) Uh, Well, how about if you made it brunch? (laughs) Make it brunch. (laughs) And everybody had Uh, to take their turn because it's a New Year's brunch to talk about their incredibly exciting and challenging work. How'd that be? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, look, I, I've been finding the question of collective action and the, and the, I guess, uh, what we call, um, dilemmas arising from it really quite fascinating. Um, so that's, has been, uh, part of, uh, major, um, part of my work. More recently, um, I've been, become very interested in questions, uh, that, um, uh, would, fall into the sub-discipline, if you like, of social epistemology. So one of the things I 
I um, found when I was trying to figure out, well, when do we have those obligations, those collective obligations, and uh, when is it the case that we should be contributing to these collective endeavours? One question that became very um, uh, uh, pressing was uh, how much that also depends on what we know uh, and what we know in common. So you and I can only, I guess, solve uh, a problem that, um, you know, concerns us both, if you like, or a, a collective action problem if if we if we kind of have similar knowledge or there must be at least be some overlap in the knowledge we have. Uh, so I've been become very interested in what it means for groups of people to know something, what it means for groups of people to be ignorant of something. So, and groups are just very fascinating because uh, everything that philosophers, but I guess also psychologists and, 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 and sociologists, everything that sort of theorists can say about the individual gets much more complicated, much more interesting when we look at groups. So one of the things uh, about group-based ignorance is that uh, when if we if we if we define ignorance as I do as sort of the lack of, for instance, true belief, and that might be due to, it might be just that we have a false belief, or it might be that we have no particular belief because we don't know that there's anything to be believed, right? Because we don't even know that there is an issue. So if we um, if we look at that for a group, there's there's probably some co- complex um, facts or complex things that we could know that um, groups can be. Uh, ignorant of in, in, in an interesting way. One particular way um, I find fascinating, and that's a term also coined in in sociology initially, is that of pluralistic ignorance. Um, and that's a type of ignorance where, let's say, you and I are part of a group, so to speak, uh, who it could or could not act on certain something. Uh, let's say we both have, we both know some fact, um, you know, we both know perhaps um where a particular cafe is, uh, um, and um, and let's say we there's for some reason to meet at the cafe. We might actually not manage to meet there if we don't uh, if we falsely believe that the other person doesn't know where the cafe is, for instance. Um, so that's uh, a type of higher order ignorance where I perhaps ascribe beliefs to you or have false beliefs about what you actually know. So pluralistic ignorance is often seen as responsible for the bystander effect, uh, where people don't intervene um, in, a, in, a, in a morally problematic situation, perhaps, where somebody is being attacked and everyone just stands around and does nothing. Uh, so social psychologists have tried to figure out what's going on in those cases, and it seems to be something like um, the that people individually um, infer from other people's inaction that other people must be uh, unconcerned about the issue and that there really isn't such a severe issue, that the issue isn't severe enough to intervene. And then if everybody remains passive, then everybody draws the false conclusion from the observation that other people are unconcerned. So it's pluralistic ignorance um, in this case because at the first order level, everyone thinks the situation is concerning and requires intervention. 
but also everyone thinks nobody else thinks that. So either they therefore question themselves and don't act or they are not motivated or are not going to intervene where the intervention requires more than one person. So I'm not going to do anything if I know I can't do it by myself and I think everybody else is unconcerned and won't intervene either. So that pluralistic ignorance is very, very fascinating um, and it is a group-based ignorance and we can, um, yeah, observe it uh, not just with a bystander effect but there's some research showing that in climate change there's also that people will sometimes or regularly misjudge how concerned other people are and there's sort of a silence and effect that can come from from it that people don't talk about it because they think others don't care about it as much as they do or they, it's not a topic to be talked about. So those questions of um, social epistemology and ignorance and group-based knowledge or the lack thereof I've been finding really, really interesting because they're really relevant to whether or not we are we will be we are in a position to act and we actually have obligations to act. Mm-hmm. That's just two of the areas I've been. <laughs> there's, there's a few more, but I I, I, wait, wait, I don't know how much I don't know how much time we have at the dinner party between between the different um, between the different courses. <laughs> well, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about where they might find some of this work. Some people who are listening might have access to the walled domain of academic writing. Some might not. But you have published both in spaces that are freely available and are scholarly and in, in a sense, public intellectual spaces that are freely available. So I wondered if you could maybe tell us both in terms of, you know, the books you've been involved in as an author or a contributor, the scholarly journals, but also I know you've written for The Conversation, for example, where folks might find some of your work. Yeah, so the work I've mostly been talking about, the relationship between individual and collective, I think mm. the best and easiest place to go uh, um, if you're just generally interested in those ideas is to the Australian uh, 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 news organisation, ABC. Uh, the ABC. I did a in, in a podcast for the ABC's uh, The Philosopher's Zone. I think it's called The Individual and the Collective. And I also wrote a blog piece um, applying these topics or these theories to the pandemic. Uh, and uh, that is published also on the ABC uh, website. It's, it's called the Religion and Ethics blog, um, the ABC Religion and Ethics blog. So those uh, uh, that's a good, that's a very good starting point. Other than that, um, there's a, philosophical uh, database run by philosophers for philosophers called philpapers.org and philpapers.org is um, a place where I've basically deposited all my um, all my articles and uh, there are um, uh, copies of most of my articles and a lot of them have been published open access not all of them have but there are copies of uh, most of my work there and with a book, uh, obviously, there's no copy of the book there, but there is uh, a free introduction to the book. So there is a PDF with an introduction to the book, which sketches the main ideas. And that's for the book Getting Our Act Together, which is the most recent book um, 
they're published. So the fieldpapers.org um, website is a good start for those who are interested in the academic ideas and the ABC um, uh, website, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's website is a good place for the interview and, and this uh, commentary or, or editorial, if you like, um, on re-reasoning in a pandemic or something like that. Re-reasoning in a public health crisis, I think it's called. Prof, I've got a couple of more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it open to you to raise something that we haven't discussed, add something to what we have discussed, whatever it might be. So my first question is of the two that I've got left. How do you choose the topics that you research into? Um, yeah, so that's an interesting question. And uh, in the uh, introduction to my book, To Getting Our Act Together, I say I do realise that we probably end up writing about stuff that have some things that have sort of some kind of personal significance to us, even though philosophers but maybe are not necessarily always aware of it. So I likened or I kind of traced my interest in collective action to mm. perhaps my, my personal history and the fact that I grew up in East Germany and that there was a peaceful revolution that ended uh, the existence of the East German state. And it was quite interesting because uh, it was obviously an oppressive state um, uh, where it wasn't easy to, to uh, you know, polit- be a political activist. In fact, it came at great cost. But there was a tipping point mm. when the action was happening and it was easier to contribute to action that was already happening. So in a sense, uh, how... It, you know, when we have these uh, obligations to, to including overthrow regime, is an extension of the question of our, you know, or more collective moral obligations generally. And perhaps also what I was interesting there was when I had conversations after the wall came down, after reunification with West Germans, there was sometimes the sometimes uh, the the explicit and sometimes more implicit question and perhaps accusation, not against me necessarily because I was quite young, but my parents' generation, why didn't you act earlier? Why didn't you do this? And why? And I was always trying to say, well, it wasn't that easy. It's not like you could just sort of, it's not like you can just sort of start and overthrow a regime like that. But basically when we have obligations to collectively fight injustice or to start something like that and how much it depends on, um, you know, what is there in terms of infrastructure, what is there in terms of group cohesion and activity already, that I, was probably always fascinating for me. Um, so that's that's one of the questions. That, other than that, oh, I also have written on, on terrorism and, and, and the ethics of war, um, that uh, is a topic that's quite different from this collective action topic. And that's also based on, I guess that was triggered partly by um, my experience with the second Iraq war. Um, I remember being a student then and finding it absolutely, absolutely shocking that uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the US, uh, UK, uh, Spain also contributed, and Australia to some extent would um, participate in this um, 
war against Iraq. And, and I think it's sort of, I at the time had studied a unit on philosophy and war at Humboldt University where I studied. And I thought, I'm not, you know, there's always very philosophical philosophy themes that you study as a student, you know, the metaphysics questions and philosophy of mind questions and philosophy of language. And I found it interesting, but then I realized what I really want to do. I want to do write about something political as a philosopher. I want it to something where philosophy can be useful to understanding a, a political problem. So that's why I turned to sort of philosophy of war and philosophy of terrorism. Uh, so it was also, I guess, to some extent, biographically um, impacted. And then climate change, I guess, is everywhere. So I think that's very helpful and quite inspiring. Thank you for both those stories, as it were. And my last question is, so, okay, Prof. Arma has found the thing she's going to research next. Yeah. What does she then do? What do you do next? Once you've decided I want to look at war and violence or I want to look at debates about collective responsibility and climate change, where do you go? What happens next? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not sure there is a. Um, there's always a very clear um, uh, trajectory there. So often, I guess, as philosophers, we want to write about something because we've read something by someone that we kind of like, but we also disagree with. So, in a sense, then <laughs> philosophers are perhaps, uh, you know. A, quite tied to often quite tied to the already existing debates but sometimes it happens that you're just utterly interested in a particular problem so one of my um projects that i'm planning to write on is environmental activism and uh, uh we for many years ago were already part of um uh, um, a workshop on this topic but more recently i've actually got inspired by people in in WA, we have uh, some we had some quite brave environmental activists who are protesting against not just the fossil fuel industry, but um, also their the not just the environmental damage, but also the cultural damage they do, partly to cultural artifacts like the Barrow Hub um, expansion, um, uh, which uh, in, in, in the north of uh, Western Australia, which uh, threatens uh, uh, rock art that's, um, you know, thousands of years old. And we had a, a unit, a course, if you like, at, uh, at Murdoch, a new one called Environmental Justice. And uh, I wanted to do something, a public event with my students because I thought that might be very interesting and, you know, because they're all quite passionate as well. So I thought it would be interesting to invite these environmental activists to to the university to discuss what the limits of legitimate environmental activism are because some of them have, you know, been, um, uh, have obviously been uh, accused of, of quite, of 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 um well trespassing and and criminal damage and you know some anyway long story short uh while sometimes you just start with just reading a philosophical article and you write something new because you kind of think you have a novel and interesting argument in this particular case i 
want to just really think more about environmental activism, how it works uh, and what its limits are, because I want to be, I think philosophers should be part of a public debate on these uh, really important social issues. So what I done, I actually started with the activists and started talking to them. Um, and then I will go to some of the philosophical literature. There's literature on civil disobedience and I will see what I can draw from that, but it's not necessarily just uh, guided by what is there in the literature. I'm going to be guided by partly what these people do and what also, you know, uh, what it might be that they that they could possibly achieve. And then for these things, it might also be interesting to consult literature other than philosophy, um, you know, sociological literature, um, political science literature, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, I'm increasingly becoming more interdisciplinary in my work as well. So, and increasingly more collaborative too. That's another thing about philosophers uh, that you probably know that we write most of our articles and books. Uh, they are single authors, so we write them by ourselves. But I've uh, increasingly engaging in collaboration, and also in particular people with from other disciplines. So then the process has become quite different. You 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 have to now look at different literatures and the different ways of understanding particularly concepts. And it's just of even approaching this, this question of even the question you could ask or find interesting differ between different disciplines. So philosophers are endlessly fascinated by puzzles and conundrums and contradictions and dilemmas. Um, not everyone is. Uh, so, so, so yeah, it's, it's been, that's been changing a bit too, but, but it's usually, it's a mix between um, the my just sort of uh, being fascination with a topic, uh, the looking at the relevant literature, not just in philosophy, and and talking to people. I think is an absolutely crucial part of doing philosophy and probably doing any academic discipline. And I think there's a way, an element where this is also downplayed uh, in the discipline a bit. We you know, we tend to think of authorship, again, as this thing where this one person has this great idea, but that's obviously not what it's like. We talk to each other. I'm talking to you now. I might come out, you know, out of this discussion, there might be this novel idea that I only had because I talked to you. Um, and philosophy is, in this really important sense, totally collaborative. Uh, so I think exposing your ideas to as many people as possible is always an um, one of the most important steps in in developing any new thought, um, and I think ideally for some of these practical problems I'm looking at, you would always get people from other disciplines too, because otherwise it become it can become myopic. Now I'm saying that there's there's philosophy problems that you probably want to discuss just with philosophers, but depending on the problem, it it will be very beneficial often to to talk to people outside your discipline. And Prof, is there something else that you'd like to add that we haven't addressed or something you'd like to go back to and provide further comment on? Uh, yeah, I just want to thought I'd mention my most recent project, which uh, uh, is not, well, not so closely related to the others. I've actually just finished uh, a big interdisciplinary project 
um, at the Center for uh, Interdisciplinary Research at Bielefeld University in Germany. And that was focused on um, the philosophy of evidence-based policy. So it was called, uh, the project is called uh, The Epistemology of Evidence-Based Policy, How Philosophy Can Facilitate the Science Policy Interface. And again, that was that was philosophers, political science, lawyers, and natural scientists trying to work together on what the conceptual challenges of evidence-based policy are. And and that that was a novel thing for me to work in this um, very, very interdisciplinary environment and also on something very, very practical um, at the same time using these uh, conceptual things. So I think, I guess um, the thing to take away here is that it's good and important to do conceptual work um, uh, in in the abstract, I guess, if you will, uh, talking mostly to the philosophy audience. Uh, at the same time, I think philosophers can, you know, be quite useful uh, talking uh, trying to try to not just understand but um, help improve um, more practical problems like in this case um, the question of evidence in evidence-based policy making and how it's being used and what our epistemic obligations are with regard to evidence and what the pitfalls are perhaps using it so so I'm, I guess I'm trying to um, walk that fine line between uh, conceptual rigor, but real world relevance. Um, yeah, and that's that's just been the been the latest attempt attempt to do so. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's been great hearing you always and learning from you, as is always the case. And I hope that you'll come back into the pod in the near future. Thank you so much, Toby. Thanks for having me. Pleasure talking to you.